Well, it's Good Friday, and at first glance, there's nothing good about Good Friday. I remember growing up, and lots of you kids have probably asked the same questions, wondering, what, why is Good Friday good? Why, why do we have Good Friday services in the church? Why don't we just wait until Easter? And that seems to be fantastic celebration. What's so good about Good Friday? And the reason is because none of us like losing. We don't like losing. Uh, the Jays uh, started their season yesterday. They lost. That's no good. Uh, stop laughing, Leafs fans. It just, we don't like losing. We don't like being associated with losing. And when we look at the cross and we look at the crucifixion, the whole thing is losing. Uh, it's embarrassing. None of us like to be on losing teams. From the disciples' point of view, they were on the wrong side of history. It was, they were losing. Today's text is going to be Matthew chapter 27. And just before we go there, you know, we consider this, that it, it was such a picture of utter and dismal failure uh, it was just hard for, the, hard, hard for the disciples, for anybody to grapple with what was happening. Because as Jesus was hanging there on the cross, he looked like a, a failed Messiah. Everything looked, by all appearances, he was a massive hoax. And he essentially disappointed absolutely everyone. The Jews wanted political reform. They wanted the rest- restoration of the Davidic kingdom. Uh, th- these are the things that they, that, that they wanted. They were looking for deliverance from oppression. And so they were disappointed because Jesus didn't come and give them that. And the Greeks, they wanted epistemological revelation and they wanted to understand truth and they wanted to have a, a, a sense of um, uh, understanding of the logic, the logos of the universe. And Jesus didn't give them that either because he's a man, which is the most humiliating thing, and he's on a cross like a criminal. Every way you look at it, It was a massive letdown of epic proportions on the surface. In the words of Brooke Ventura, who is the uh, editor for uh, Modern Reformation magazine, she phrased the dilemma of Good Friday for the disciples like this. Nobody wanted a God who became a man to save them from a threat they didn't understand and usher in a kingdom they couldn't see. By dying a shameful death on a criminal's cross. Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 32. Or sorry, starting in verse 27. And the soldiers of the governor went out and took Jesus to the governor's headquarters. And they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and there. Read in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him, and they took the reed, and they struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, and they put his own clothes back on him, and they led him away to crucify him. And as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene. Simon was his name. And they compelled him to carry Christ's cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, They offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among themselves by casting lots. And they sat down and they kept watch over him there. And over his head they put charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. 
And then two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by, they derided him. They were wagging their heads and they were mocking Jesus, saying, You who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. And so also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders, they mocked him. They said, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled Jesus in the same way. And now in the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Elech, Elech, labach sabachthani, which is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing him, said, This man is calling for Elijah. And one of them ran, and they took a sponge, and they filled it with sour wine, and they put it on a reed, and they gave it to Jesus to drink. But the others said, Wait, let's see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and he yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. And the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs, after his resurrection, they went out into the holy city and appeared to many. And when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and saw what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. And there were also women there, looking from a distance, who would follow Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. This is God's word. Today we're going to look at why Good Friday is good. And we're going to look at why it still matters for us today, church. And we're going to really look at three things through this text, which is really the sermon today in a sentence. And it's that the cross of Christ is historical, redemptive, and life-changing. It's historical in the sense that many historians, even the skeptical ones, will look back on this and say this really, this occurred, this happened. This isn't some sort of a legend, because the way in which that text is written, it doesn't fit the genre of legends. Uh, for example, uh, it's got all of the signs, if you're a textual critic looking back on ancient literature, it's got all of the signs of an eyewitness account. It's very descriptive, there's a lot of detail, it gives little details that you don't find in ancient legendary uh, literature. For example, it says, and there was a guy from Cyrene. They know the name of the place. His name was Simon. You can go and find him. Chief, check this out. Fact check. And he carried Christ's cross. And it goes on. It talks about how there were women there, which was an ancient no-no to even mention that. Because in the ancient world, women weren't given any dignity. And so to mention that there were women witnessing this um, would have actually done the opposite if you were trying to con concoct some sort of a great legend. So there's all of these telltale signs throughout the text which gives us confidence. We look back and we say, our faith is not pinned on something that's just ideological. All of our faith and all of our hope is pinned on something that's historical. And this great uh, picture of uh, God writing himself into human history in a way that is just unfathomable. Uh, the other reason that historians agree that this occurred in history and that Jesus wasn't just some sort of a legend and you can read outside of the Bible, in like Roman antiquity, a, a writer named Flavius Josephus, who written about Jesus uh, from kind of you know his kind of point of view that he was a man from Nazareth that actually lived. 
But one of the reasons that they, they give this is just the huge factor of embarrassment and humiliation about the crucifixion. The reasons why all of us, and some of you kids, to say, like, why is Good Friday good? I mean, people who look back on literature look at that and go, yeah, there's nothing good about this. And in the ancient world, when you're writing legends, if you were trying to concoct some sort of a new religion, and this guy, Jesus Christ, was going to be the founder of your new religion, you'd never write it this way. And so they all look back at this and said, no, this happened. This isn't, these are eyewitness uh, accounts. Um, you've got Jesus shrieking from the cross. The Greek work for Jesus crying out is, uh, could also be said he shrieked. You know, he cracked. So uh, a first century Greek person reading this text would have this image of this bleeding, shrieking, writhing man on a cross. I mean, everything about it is disgusting and horrifying. And not, 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 none of it makes you say, you know, I'm going to follow that guy. It's so embarrassing and it's, and it's, and it's so uh, dismal. There's that whole portion in that text we read, we read where they were saying, oh, he's calling out for Elijah. You remember that part? Was, oh, he's calling out for Elijah. Why would they say that? Well, in, notice that the whole text uh, was originally written in, in Greek. All of the New Testament was written in Greek. But that one line in all of your Bibles, if you read it, is still in Aramaic. Did you notice that? It's because it was such a shocking thing that the eyewitnesses wrote it down and they actually, even though they were writing the New Testament in Greek, they left that one line in Aramaic. So historians will look back on details like this and go, boy, that's really pointing to something. So that line Jesus said, Elech, Elech, Lavach Sabachthani. The Elech is, my God. Elech, my God. Elijah, in, he, in Aramaic, is Elechu. So Jesus is crying, Elech, Elech. Elijah's name is Ilhu. But he's hanging on the cross and he's been beaten and he's exasperated and he's within an inch of his life. So many historians, look, uh, theologians will look back on that and say, why were they saying he was calling out for Elijah? It's because it probably sounded to the crowds like he was saying, Ilhu, as he's gasping for air on the cross. And they're like, oh, look at this false prophet. He's calling out for Elijah. Which makes it even more embarrassing. Because for those of you who are new to the scriptures... There is a story about Elijah where he's dealing with the false prophets of Baal. And the false prophets are saying, Baal is the real God, and Elijah's saying, no, he isn't. They say, well, we're going to call on our God, and Baal doesn't answer, so what do the false prophets do? They start cutting themselves, and they start writhing around, and they start crying out for Baal. So here you've got these false prophets in the Old Testament bleeding, writhing around, calling out to their God, who's not answering them? And now you've got Jesus Christ on the cross, bleeding, writhing, crawling out to his God, who's not answering him. So like, oh, we've seen this before. Bloody false prophets. The whole thing is humiliating. It's, it's an utter humiliation. And this is why we have great confidence in the way that this text is written. But this isn't some sort of a legend that we hope is true and we believe in. God wrote himself into human history. And it's powerful. It's astounding. It's, it's, it's amazing. There's, there would be no other way for us to know God if he didn't write his way into human history. There's an author, a uh, famous author, many of you, Stephen King. He's got this Dark Tower series. It's like eight books. And in book number six, Stephen King writes himself into the narrative. And he starts introducing himself, Stephen King the author, to the other characters in this narrative. And one of the other characters in the narrative who, who discovers the author tries to kill him so that the story doesn't continue. That's pretty meta, right? 
I'm not saying that Stephen King was influenced by the scriptures in a direct way, but I'm just saying it's pretty meta to have an author write himself into the story so that the characters can actually know the author, because apart from that, they'd never know him. That's the crucifixion of Christ in 33 AD under Pontius Pilate. That's the God of the universe writing himself into human history so that we can have great confidence and great hope in why we believe in what we believe. But this cross is redemptive. Not only is it historical, it's powerful, it's redemptive. In other Gospels, we know that Christ's last words were, it is finished, which is great hope for us, because nothing in our life is finished. Nothing in our life is complete. Everything is always on the go and on the move. The one thing that we find rest in is the fact that, for those of you who are new to church or new to the Scriptures, is that Christianity isn't just one of many other religious options whereby you work your way up to God, but rather, by Christ using those very specific words, it is finished, He's making a statement that God has thoroughly and completely and fully worked his way down to us. In verse 40, you notice that there's these mocking words, where in verse 40, there's that part where they all start saying, Ah, come off the cross, Jesus. I mean, if you're God, come off the cross. This is the last of Christ's great temptations. At the beginning of Matthew's gospel, Jesus is tempted three times in the wilderness, and at the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus is tempted a final time at the cross. The first three times Jesus is tempted, all three temptations all culminate in, hey, you don't have to go through with this. And the last, and, and, and after Jesus defeats the, the devil the third time in the wilderness so that he could identify with our humanity and our te- by overcoming temptation, after that, the text says, at the beginning of Matthew, it says, and the devil left for a more opportune time. This right here is the opportune time. This is the devil coming in, the, the final temptation, hey, you don't have to go through with this. The first three temptations at the beginning of the Matthew were all about division, right? The devil is the accuser. He's the diabolos. He is the, the slanderer. If I can just create division in the Trinity, separate God the Father from God the Son, if I can get God the Son to think God the Father is an ogre, making him go through this, and he doesn't go through with it, then humanity has no way to God. And that didn't work. So here are the last moments of Christ's life. They're all, they're all calling out for the same thing. Hey, if you're God, why don't you prove it? Why don't you come down off that cross? And to borrow from the New Testament scholar Robert Mount, and kids, if you look down in your notes, you'll see this quote is here for you. It was the power of Christ's love, not the nails, that kept him there. God's grace at the cross reminds us uh, of his goodness. It redeems us. But before it redeems us, the cross actually confronts us. Because the cross says two simultaneous striking statements. The cross says that our sin was so bad that Christ had to die. But it also says that we're so loved he wanted to. And when you look at this uh, verse uh, 45, it talks about darkness coming down. Christ is on the cross and then darkness covers the whole earth. And all throughout the Old Testament, whenever darkness came, it was a symbol of God's judgment. And so here you've got this darkness coming and it's God's judgment coming. Well, God's judgment has to come down somewhere. And in an astonishing act of grace, he pours and directs all of his judgment on all of his wrath on his own son. So that all of his judgment and all of his wrath will not be poured out on you. And so the, the darkness comes. And it, this was prophesied centuries earlier in Amos chapter 8, where in Amos 8 it says, In that day I will make the sun go down at noon over all the land. Right? And so you've got this picture that we've got to grapple with that, why that uh, darkness came and why that had to come down. Because we can't understand the cross if we don't grapple with our, own, with our own guilt. 
And uh, it's difficult to grapple with our guilt. Some of us have done things. We can look back over the course of our lives and go, boy, there's some things that I've done where it's so horrifying to me, the hurt, the devastation that I have caused to myself and others, the cross. Yeah, maybe I can grapple my mind around my guilt and the cross. Others of us, we have this sort of naivety with the way we think about our lives and we say, well, I don't know that I've actually done anything that warrants this. I don't think I'm that bad a person. A bleeding, dying Jesus on a cross? I, don't, I mean, I don't know that I'm that bad. This is the conversation many of us have, right? I mean, I wake up, I, try, I, I go to work, I come home, I try and be a good person, I have dinner, I'm tired, I'm wiped, I Netflix binge, I go to bed. Does that really warrant this? Is this like divine overkill? We can't grapple with our own guilt because often we're naive to it or we're too busy downplaying it or justifying it or, or comparing it against somebody else's sin and guilt that we think is worse than our own. So maybe I'm going to, maybe I'll make a clarification on, on this thing we call sin um, that might help us understand this. And if you're new to the scriptures, this will be helpful for you. The scriptures don't reduce sin to a list of actions that we do. Right? Jesus didn't go to the cross because there's, a, there's this list of actions that humanity couldn't stop doing. It's not what this is about. Sin isn't like just that list. If, it was, if that's all it was, then we could save ourselves by just keeping the list. The scriptures don't reduce sin to a list of actions that we do. They talk about sin and describe it as a condition that we're born into, and that's very different. Years ago, I was in Los Angeles, uh, California, with some students, and we were working with an organization. We are volunteering for an organization that was feeding the homeless, and we woke up in L.A. every morning, and the smog was so thick, you couldn't see the Hollywood sign, which was very close to where we were staying. And by one in the afternoon, you could see it clear as day. Because by the afternoon, the sun had come out and had burnt, burnt through the smog. It, the pollution was still there, you just couldn't see it. And that's the, that kind of pollution, you wake up breathing it in, whether you can see it or you can't see it, it has comprehensively and extensively affected and tainted everything that's the way the Bible talks about sin. It's a comprehensive condition that all humanity is born into, that we're breathing in and living out of, that we need rescue from. It's not simply a list of actions whereby we can compare our life to somebody else and say, I'm not sure that I need Jesus because I'm a pretty good person. And sin doesn't play itself out in every human heart with the same intensity. But sin has affected every human heart extensively. And so, we can't just keep the list and save ourselves. Christ didn't come to the cross simply because there was a list of things that we just couldn't seem to stop doing. It was much, much deeper than that. The reason that we uh, grapple with the idea of guilt on Good Friday and looking at that and thinking about, wow, you know, does the sin of humanity, you know, warrant that? Sure, we can look out on culture and point at really evil and horrific things and say, yep, that right there seems like something. Human trafficking, you know... uh, uh, you know, oppression, uh, oppression of the poor, oppression of, uh, uh, of the downcast. Yeah, that seems like something you should go to the cross for. But my sin, I'm not sure I'm that guilty. We grapple with it because we have this prevailing cultural narrative uh, that says, you know, live according to your own ideas and live without guilt, live without, live without regret. Just you, you pick your own lifestyle and you be good with that and everybody else should be good with it and God, God Almighty should be good with, with your choices too. This is the kind of the, this is the water that we're swimming in. 
But the truth is that if we were to actually live a life without guilt and live a life with no regrets, that would have to mean we were living for ourselves. Nothing could transcend us. Only our ideas, only what we wanted, only what we thought mattered most. In essence, we would be God. And you see, it's that guilt in many different forms that all of us are born uh, guilty of and born into. Because the entirety of God's law can be summed up in this. And this is how Jesus summed it up. This is why Good Friday had to happen. The entirety of su- summary of God's law can be summed up in saying that we are to love God with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength. And we're to love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves. And there's nobody in this room, starting with this guy, that's actually doing that. I don't love God with all my heart, my soul, my mind, my strength, perfectly, perpetually, every day. I do, and then I don't. I trust him, but then I don't. I turn to him in prayer, and then I don't. I go to him to find comfort, and then I don't. And I don't love all of you as much as I love myself. I know that makes me a lousy pastor, Sorry you're stuck with this one. Well, I guess you're not stuck. I mean, you can, you're, you know, it's a free world. You can go somewhere else. But I mean, it, I don't. I care about you and your needs more than mine, and then I don't. I'm willing to sacrifice my time for my neighbor and give of my, my resources or my, or my calendar, but then I'm not. And that's all of us. According to God's standard of good, none of us are good. Problem is, we compare ourselves with you know the Dalareks of society and say we're pretty good, but that's not the standard. So the cross is is redemptive because it simultaneously tells us we're worse than we thought because God had to come and die. But then it turns around and the cross tells us that we're more loved than we thought because He was willing to. And so this cross of Jesus Christ is is absolutely life changing. In verse forty six. When Jesus cries out, my God, my God, I want to emphasize the my for a minute. My God. He's not crying, my head, my hands, my side, my friends, my kingdom. He's crying, my God. It's covenant language. If you study the uh, the Old Testament, or for those of you who are new to the scriptures, okay, my God is covenant language. In Exodus 6, God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. The my is this whole this glorious and beautiful covenant language. It's this deep, intimate language. It's not there's a God, it's my God. And so when Jesus cries out, my God, this is like this intimate, intimate pain that's being conveyed here. Um, We're seeing when Jesus says, my God, my God, it's the infinity of his suffering, a gut-wrenching loss of love. When you think about uh, the ultimate pain in human experience, the ultimate pain in any of your lives, the ultimate pain in, in my life, it's losing someone we love. Whether it's uh, a severed friendship, or a severed family relationship, or a romance that dissolves, or a marriage that ends in divorce, or a relationship that ends because all our common enemy took it away, our common enemy being death itself, That's the greatest pain in the human experience, is that loss of love. And so, kids, if you look down at your notes, you'll see that I've got something here I want you to see, and it's that all suffering and all pain in human experience, it exists because of sin. Death itself exists because of sin. This cross of Christ is historical, redemptive, and life-changing, because in it, Jesus Christ is paying the price to deal with our biggest problem, which is sin and death. And he's going to hell to do it. 
He is crying out, my God. He is experiencing the ultimate intimacy loss of his father. He's going through hell for you. He's being forsaken by his father. He's being forsaken by the one who loves him, who must turn from him as he takes on the sin of the world. He's doing it for you. He's making a way possible so that the story of the end of your life is not a casket going into the ground. That's what he's doing here. And he's doing it for you. And so at the cross we see this. Jesus is crying out from hell's heart, My God! Which is his way of saying, I love you still! He's being abandoned. He's being rejected. He's being forsaken. And in the midst of his abandonment by his father, he's saying, I still love you, Father. Even in this. Now, contrary to radically poor theology that looks at this like divine child abuse, it's the furthest thing from it. God is not some ogre. It was the love of the Father that compelled the Son to raise his hand and willingly do this. It was the Father's love that motivated it. And Jesus demonstrates this incredible, uh, otherworldly, perfect love and perfect trust in Christ. You and I can't give that. You and I can't have that. You and I don't do that. When God lets us down, in our, in our point of view, we've been let down by God in some, in some sort of a way. Very rarely in the midst of our pain and our letdown and what's God doing and we don't understand, very rarely in those moments do we look to the sky and say, my God, I love you still. We say, God, what are you doing? God, I don't understand. God, if you're real, you'll do this. God, if I'm not sure I can trust you. If by next Thursday at 5, you don't do this thing. Most people who are so angry at God and angry that he exists are doing so on a backdrop of radical disappointment that God didn't somehow do something in their life that they thought that he would do, which in no way disproves God's existence. If anything, the only thing it proves is that God doesn't answer to us. And so we can't give this kind of love and loyalty to God. And there's Jesus giving it for us. And then he gives that perfect record of perfect trust and perfect love to you to justify you so that when God looks at you he says not guilty and friends you are so guilty <laughs> I'm so guilty by God's standard of loving loving our neighbors and loving him I'm I'm guilty we're all guilty but God looks at us he says not guilty because Jesus Christ took this perfect record of trust and my God that beautiful covenant language and he, and he gives this perfect record uh, to us and we rest in that and we rest in that justification and kids uh, when you look down at your notes I put a thing there what does it mean to be justified and I kind of explained that there for you and you'll remember from, from Redeemer Kids that Susan and the teachers often talk about it like this justified means it's justified never sinned and it's justified always obeyed that's an easy way to remember it and this is what Christ has done on the cross for all of us. The cross is the symbol of God's pardon. And in the, world, in the words of Spurgeon, once God pardons you, there is no end to that pardon. 
And so this is the glorious work of his grace in this picture, which is on, uh, uh, this picture of his grace, which is on display. That Jesus was willing to be forsaken, and he had to be forsaken, so that you and I will never be forsaken. This is, this, this is forgiveness in action. This is love in action. God's love, in a- God's love cost him something. It cost him everything. And that's what makes it so glorious. That's what makes it so um, astounding. You know, this week, I came out of a coffee shop, and somebody had hit my car and drove away. So I had to absorb that cost. I had to pay the deductible. Now let's say I walked out while they were doing it. Bang! They hit my car. And because I'm a very holy and sanctified pastor, as you all know, rich with patience, my my instinctive reaction would be to forgive them, obviously, right? I would obviously do that. Kids, this is uh, sarcasm, in case you... Heaven. Anyways, let's say I walked out and bang, and I and they go, "Oh my goodness, oh, I'm so sorry." And I say, "I forgive you. You can go." That'd be quite a picture. But bang, they hit it, and they look at me and they go, "I'm not even sorry that I did that." And I say, "Okay, I forgive you. You're free to go." Or third scenario, which is more scriptural, bang. They drive away, they have no clue of their infraction. They have just blissfully and ignorantly sinned against them, which is all of us. That's the condition we're born into, the offense to God. Uh, Even if I forgive them, who's going to absorb the cost? You see, Good Friday is good because Jesus Christ absorbed the cost. Forgiveness is only forgiveness if someone absorbs the cost. And Jesus absorbed the entire cost. The reason we talk about sin, the reason we talk about death, the reason we talk about eternity and heaven and hell and these things, and I don't, the reason I don't omit those things, the reason why I don't say, let, you know, it's Good Friday and it's kind of dark, so let's just talk about love and grace and not talk about sin and death, is because if I omit sin and death, I've omitted the very action that warranted God's love. If you say you love somebody and you're willing to sacrifice nothing, you don't love them. You're being sentimental. That's not love, that's sentimentality. And if somebody says they love you, oh, I love you, but they can't bend their schedule for you, that doesn't change you, that doesn't move you, that doesn't minister to you, that does nothing for you. If somebody says, oh, I love you, I love you so much, it might flatter you, but that's as far as it goes. God is not a God who flatters us with sentimentality. So while I recognize that there's There's lots of books available written by ill-informed guys in pulpits who don't want to talk about sin anymore in 2018, so they do away with it. Like, hey, grace means sin doesn't matter anymore, and that's not Christian faith. Hey, there's no heaven, or there's no hell in the end. It's all what they've erased the cross. We don't make God less loving by talking about sin and death and heaven and hell. We showcase that He's more loving. Because he sacrificed everything for us. The cross is his sacrifice on display. That it is finished. That's why the, that, that veil tore from the top to the bottom in the text that we read. That's the direction of God's grace. It is from the top to the bottom. We don't have a God who says he loves us but takes no action. No, God's love takes action. If you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. And if you want to know how God feels about you, you look at the cross. The circumstances of your life, 
the circumstances of your relationships, of your employment, of your life on campus, of what's going on in your body, those circumstances are not a commentary on how God feels about you. The cross is the commentary on how God feels about you. And it says that you're loved. We all have a common problem, and it's called sin. And we all have a common enemy, and it's called death. And the cross is God's gracious solution for both. To borrow from Samuel Grandy, the late hymn writer, I hear the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them well and thousands more. My God, he findeth none. Jesus Christ was righteous in his nature. And he declares you and I righteous by grace. And unlike every other ruler, king, lord, and political leader in human history who established their kingdom by taking power, Jesus established his kingdom by laying down power. Not by killing, by dying. Not by shedding the blood of his enemies, but by shedding his own blood for the forgiveness of his enemies. This is our Jesus. At the cross, Jesus Christ triumphed through weakness so that you and I find salvation by confessing our weakness. The disciples watched this crucifixion from afar because from their point of view, the crucifixion of Jesus was an epic representation of failure, disappointment, and the worst possible scenario. But God, in his infinite wisdom and grace, provided an epic display of mercy and justice, and he made the cross the best possible scenario. The cross was a political statement by Rome to proclaim that Caesar was Lord. And in a shocking turn of events, the cross is now an eternal symbol by God that Jesus Christ is Lord. And what could Jesus, the one through whom the universe was created and the one through whom he holds the world together with the word of his power, possibly have to gain on Good Friday? You. Let's pray.